I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Guy Barter and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. Last weekend saw a very important date arrive in the calendar for some, as it was UK Fungus Day. This is a day to celebrate all things mycological. There were talks about fungi folklore, sessions on forays, and fungal art, and much more besides. And so, inspired by that day, I want to talk about the good side. The fungus provides plants with moisture and nutrients that they've gathered using their fungal strands. The bad side. Fungi are pretty common as plant pathogens, so you have some diseases that are caused by bacteria and viruses, but actually the vast majority of plant diseases are caused by fungi. And the musical side. Bear with me on this one. Being fungi, living groundwork, mycelium, mycelium. Of all things fungi in today's episode... Fungi have been a big part of folklore for centuries. In some places they were believed to be the devil's spawn, as they appeared after big storms. Naturally occurring circles of mushrooms are sometimes called fairy rings, thought to be places where fairies come to dance. I'm not so sure about that myself, but I do know that in the gardening world, mushrooms aren't always very popular. Let's meet one man who sees them in a different way. Biologist Merlin Sheldrake. I've just written a book called Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures. And for the last three weeks, it's been devoured by this pleurotus fungus, which has produced this rather amazing crop of oyster mushrooms, which I plan to eat and thus eat my words. That's a clip from a video on Merlin's website that shows, as he says, a host of mushrooms growing out of his new book. He then proceeds to cut the mushrooms off the book, fry them, and then eat them. So now I'm sautéing the oyster mushrooms. A little bit of garlic and some oil. Keep it simple. He is clearly very interested in fungi, and this fascination started at an early age. When I was a child, I used to make piles of leaves in the autumn, and I would jump into them from the low branches of a nearby tree. As the year progressed, as the months passed, these piles would shrink. It would be harder and harder for me to hide inside them. I would wonder, how is this possible? Where are these leaf piles going? Are they sinking into the soil? There was this sense that they were sinking, but I didn't know what they were sinking into. 
was a strange experience because I knew that something was changing, that was transforming, but I couldn't see the organisms that were doing this. So I spent a long time hiding in these leaf piles trying to catch these organisms in the act, but of course I never could. This was one way that I fed my curiosity on about these organisms. Fungi are a kingdom of life, so they're as broad and busy a category as animals or plants, and there are many ways to be a fungus. Fungi range from single-celled yeasts, which we're familiar with from baking or from brewing, and they range through to some of the largest organisms in the world, as these big uh, networks, which we call mycelium, branching, fusing networks of tubular cells, which is how most fungi live most of their lives. We think there are between 2.2 and 3.8 million species, over 90% of which remain undescribed. So human history with fungi goes back a very long time. Long before we were human, many animals eat mushrooms and depend on mushrooms as a source of food, as we know from truffles and the way that truffles are attracted to dogs or pigs, but also to squirrels and shrews and mice. We've been using mushrooms, no doubt, for a very long time as a nutritional resource and also as medicinal ones. There are some well-preserved bodies from thousands of years ago, one in particular called the Iceman, a Neolithic corpse found in glacial ice in Austria, in the Austrian Alps. And when the Iceman died about 7,000 years ago, he was carrying with him a mushroom called amadou, or the tinder fungus, which people have used to carry a coal. And to be able to carry fire or the, or the source of fire around with you obviously is a very important thing to do, a life-maintaining thing to do. And so he was carrying this well-prepared tinder fungus. And he was also carrying with him some prepared birch polypore mushrooms, which he probably used as a medicine to treat parasites. So this implies that knowledge of fungi as medicines and as other technologies stretch back a very long way. Since then, humans have used fungi for all sorts of things. Penicillin is a very famous example. In 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered that certain species of fungus could produce a compound that could kill bacteria. And this became the first antibiotic and transformed the course of modern medicine. Today, there are many drugs that are produced by fungi, or at least were originally produced by fungi. Cyclosporin is one, a drug that makes organ transplants possible. Statins are another. The blockbuster anti-cancer drug Taxol, uh, produced by fungi that live in the U-needles. Um, it's a very long list. Then, of course, there's foods. There are um, misos, which are made from a fungus digesting grains and beans, and alcohol produced by a yeast, as the yeast transforms sugars. And of course, bread, which is made to rise by a yeast, and um, many of the enzymes used in industry. So fungi have been shaping our lives for a very long time and will no doubt continue to do so. I found that thinking about fungi and studying fungi makes the world look different. Our fungi live their lives enmeshed in their environment. They have to, unlike animals which find food and put it inside their bodies to digest it, fungi put their bodies inside their food. And to do that, they have to have this shape-shifting form. They can't have any stable body plan in the way that humans or other animals do. Because of this, they have to be able to you know, thicken in one part of the network, prune themselves in another part. And they're constantly revising their shape 
And in doing so, they have to coordinate themselves in ways that are puzzling to us. We have a very determinate body plans and we have centralized bodies we have heads and we have hearts and we design our our social systems to reflect our centralized bodies we have capital cities we have heads of state Um, but funky don't have these places these localized places where they based all their coordination they coordinate themselves but they coordinate themselves a little bit everywhere at once and nowhere in particular and this i find fascinating and thinking about these centralized lives has coaxed me out of some of my uh, well-worn patterns of thought and my human habits. I worked with a sound ecologist called Michael Prime to make sounds from fungus, uh, from this pleurotus fungus, the fungus that produces oyster mushrooms. I'd fed my book, Entangled Life, to these pleurotus fungi and I wanted to listen to what they were up to. So Michael Prime has this device where you can attach electrodes to the book that's being consumed by the fungus to different parts of the fungal network. These electrodes detect the bioelectric activity of the fungus, and it uses these fluctuations in the fungal bioelectric activity to control a sound generator. And so it produces these sounds which which vary depending on what the fungus is doing. It's a real-time sonic representation of the activity of the fungus as it digests the book. And it's less that the fungus is producing the sound, it's more that the sound is making audible these fluctuations of activity within the fungus. Being fungi, living groundwork. I used these sounds together with my brother, Cosmo, and we used these sounds to make pieces of music. The whole thing was, was quite a, a funny exercise. Merlin Sheldrake. Whoever knew that Fungu could have such an ear for a tune? That was really very catchy. Now, Merlin mentioned that he used oyster mushrooms to make music, but there is one much more common use for them food. I've actually given mushroom growing a go before and I have to say that I need a lot more help. My mushroom growing didn't do at all well. I bought the dowels, I put them into wood and nothing happened. Some of my colleagues at Wisley, being very keen in fungi, have actually infected coffee grounds with mushroom spawn and the mushroom spawn has grown but they just can't find the the right conditions to actually form mushrooms. We definitely need a bit more help. Anne Miller is someone with years of experience in the mushroom trade. She's been growing them for over 25 years and her fungi have even featured in two gold medal winning gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show. We spoke to her to get some advice on how to grow your own. Three tips would be if you're wanting to grow in the house, start with oyster mushrooms. You can grow them on an old paperback book toilet roll, straw, variety of different materials that you have about the house. Get a pack of the mushroom mycelium on green spawn. Have some straw, put it in a a large bag. You're needing about 500 grams up to 5 kilograms in a black bin liner. Best to pour boiling water over the straw and let it cool. That kills all the other weed fungi and bacteria. Once it's cooled, pour it off, then sprinkle in the green spawn. You let the green spawn grow through the straw 
until it's fully colonised and then you cut slits in the bag and allow the mushrooms to grow out into humid air. A lot of people go wrong because at that point the little mushrooms are developing into dry air and they just wither and go back. If you wanted to grow in the garden, the best one to do is shiitake on hardwood logs. Beech and oak are very good, but things like willow and aspen also work. They're lesser hardwoods. You drill a series of holes in the logs and you pop in little dowels already impregnated with the mushroom mycelium. The mushroom mycelium travels through the log, fully colonises the log, and you can shock the logs by plunging them into cold water for two days. That's equivalent to an autumn storm, drop in temperature, the heavy rain, and also movement stimulates the shiitake mushrooms to produce fruiting bodies. And you can do that any time of the year, four times a year, and get a flush of mushrooms. You know, for the, the more experienced, the more advanced, you can grow a variety of different mushrooms in your vegetable beds as companion plants. Things like astropheria and some of the oyster and the king oyster will grow on straw in the garden between plants. With any mushroom, you have to positively identify, even when you're growing from mushroom spawn, because other weed fungi are, are in the environment. Shiitake mushroom has a brown top, white gills, and looks like a button mushroom. The shiitake mushrooms can also have a, a slight velvety top to them. Oyster mushrooms tend to be a variety of colours. The British mushrooms are all grey, white or blue. You get the tropical oyster mushrooms that are pink and yellow and they form almost a, a fan shape. The colour is the same throughout so you don't see a difference between the top and the gills. Almost a little trumpet shape they form as they grow. You know, you're saying, why am I fascinated with fungi? It's just a kingdom that's so unexplored. Uh, there's a lot of folklore and myth attached to it, but there's a lot of science, and as scientists, we are really finding out what the fungal kingdom can do for us, hopefully reducing the CO2 levels, giving us a better diet, but all the, the medicines that we might be able to get. It's fascinating. Some great tips from Anne Miller. I've got a load of freshly cut holly logs. I'm going to give them a go. I think I particularly like the tip about shocking them by throwing buckets of water on them. I can certainly do that. Sadly, for us gardeners, it's true that not all types of fungi are friendly. Jassy Draculich is an RHS plant pathologist and an expert on fungal baddies. Honey fungus, powdery mildew, pear rust... Name a plant disease and she knows it. We spoke to her to find out more about which fungal diseases to look out for in the garden and how to manage against them. Fungi are pretty common as plant pathogens. So you have some diseases that are caused by bacteria and viruses, but actually the vast majority of plant diseases are caused by fungi. And in the top 10 diseases that we diagnosed last year... Number one, honey fungus, that's a fungus. Number three is box blight, another fungus. Four is pear rust, also a fungus. And then I think the entire 
rest of the list are all fungi. So only one of those in there is not a fungus. And yeah, some of the other common ones that you might have come across are things like brown rot of fruit, uh, leaf spots and cankers, a scab on apple and pear. Of course, rose black spot is uh, pretty widely known. And powdery mildew, another very common one that people will see, especially during years when you've got uh, irregular watering like we have had this year with periods of drought followed by periods of heavy rain. Powdery mildew can really take over and uh, cover your plants in this white dusty coating. Awareness of what you've got is really important because these fungi will differ very greatly in how severely they will impact on the health of that plant. So things like honey fungus and phytophthora, they can kill the plant. And same with verticillium wilt, that's another big killer. Whereas things like rose black spot, apple and pear scab, even powdery mildew, unless it gets really out of hand, and certainly pear rust, they won't kill your plant. They'll just detract from its overall vigour. Knowing what you've got and knowing how important it is to eradicate it or just to minimise the damage of it is important to distinguish. And so, yeah, doing what you can in terms of cultural measures to try and minimise how much is there is usually a really good first step. So that could be picking off the infected leaves in some cases. And if it's only a small case infection, that could be a really good place to start. So if you see some powdery mildew popping up on your courgettes, Pick those leaves off straight away. Focus on maintaining good watering on that plant because I say when it gets between drought and then well watered in these fluctuations that the pathogen can really take over the plant. And then doing things like preventing watering in the area around where the leaves are because any fungal spores that are resting on those leaves can be splashed around and moved from leaf to leaf by overhead watering. So ensuring that watering at the base can prevent that from spreading further and further around the plant. One of the best ways to keep disease out of your garden is by paying attention, knowing what your plants look like when they're healthy and then looking at them closely, frequently, really appreciating them. And then you'll notice when things start to creep in and that will enable you to take action when it's still small scale and you can prepare for any future outbreaks um, by yeah, then doing your homework on it and understanding what the potential outcome could be if the disease scenario gets worse. When you're looking at your plant to see how healthy it is, you should be looking at all the different parts of the plant. So if you look at the leaves, you should know what they look like when they're healthy, usually glossy, usually green. The surface is smooth. As soon as something starts to go wrong with that plant, you might see a change in colour on the leaf. So that could be yellow spots. It could be going pale. It could be going brown. It could be going purple. You could start to see a change in the texture of the leaf becoming sunken or raised or puckered or crinkled. You could see the leaf becoming less shiny. It could be wilting and potentially just dying back entirely. Then also looking at the actual structure of the plant, so the stems and the trunks and the branches and things. If you see there's any changes in the external texture of those, so we have what we call cankers. These are basically um, areas where the tissue is changed. It's become usually a fungal invaded area and it's starting to produce spores for that fungus. So that, again, will be a change in colour or texture. On a tree, you could get weeping from the bark, so like oozing liquid out, and uh, that could be colourless. It could be black in the case of Phytophthora bleeds. Uh, Likewise, flowers, you can see the change in flowers. So sometimes flower buds will be aborted and they can look water-soaked. 
These are all signs that, oh, there's something going a bit wrong with this plant. But another big action that is useful is not just dealing with it in that season, but preventing carryover to the following season. So the things like brown rot of fruit, this can create mummified fruit that is just absolutely packed full of the fungus and makes loads and loads of spores. And then the following year, that's where the fungus kind of re-emerges from to reinfect the rest of the new growth on the plant. So inspecting over winter, cleaning up all that debris and using good garden hygiene. So make sure that once it's all gone, you're not home composting it. You're either burning it, putting it into landfill or putting it into commercial composting and then cleaning your tools well with disinfectants such as jade fluid and that includes the gloves that you've used. There are also fungicides available if you really need to control the disease. We generally always advocate for using these as a last resort firstly because there are so many other fungi in the environment not just the ones that you're trying to target these non-target organisms that would could potentially be affected by applying those fungicides so in the soil all these fungi contribute to decomposing the organic matter that falls there and creates a nice rich humus so that plants can have actively available nutrients that have been liberated from this dead material and secondly, there's also the idea that we only have a limited number of uh, like active substances that work as fungicides. We would like to preserve these for use on the most valuable crops that we have. Because like with antibiotic resistance in bacteria, overuse of fungicides means that fungi get exposed to those chemicals and they can evolve resistance against them. So you want to use your best tools for the best jobs and not blunt them out on, on purposes that really not that higher priority. Jassy Draculich. This year has been so dry that fungus diseases haven't been the usual problem they are for me, but in a wet year I can have the most terrible problems with downy mildew, powdery mildew, botrytis, leaf spot, ring spot, all sorts of horrid things like that. Happily for we fruit and vegetable growers, plant breeders have produced some wonderful varieties that are resistant, notably to things like onion downy mildew and potato and tomato blight. And by choosing these resistant varieties, well, it's transformed my allotment life. Allotments are hotbeds of diseases, so resistant varieties really come in handy, particularly as there's very few fungicides available for use on edible plants. As Jassy mentioned, the soil is full of good fungi, and it's important we protect them. One type you might have heard of is mycorrhizal fungi. But what exactly are they? Here's one of our advisors to reveal all. Hi, my name's Charlotte Sweeney. I'm a horticultural advisor for the RHS, and today I'm going to explain what mycorrhizal fungi are and why they matter in your garden. So mycorrhizas are naturally occurring fungi that form a mutually beneficial association with plant roots. Basically, both parties get something out of that. So the fungus provides plants with moisture and nutrients that they've gathered using their fungal strands, which are a bit like the sort of fungal version of roots. And the plants provide the fungus with sugars, so they both get something out of it. Some live actually within plant roots and they're called endomycorrhiza and you find those more often in herbaceous plants. Some live on plant roots, they're called ectomycorrhiza and they're mostly found on trees. 
basically the fungus acts as an extension to the root system so it increases the amount of moisture and nutrients that the plant can absorb which is really really important particularly in uncultivated soils where nutrients like phosphorus are really scarce a plant would have to have a much much larger root system to be able to get all the phosphorus it needs to grow healthily but if it can form these associations with the fungus it gets everything it needs from a much smaller root zone. The main way you'll have come across mycorrhiza is in recommendations to actually sprinkle it on to the roots or into the soil when you're planting, particularly woody plants like fruit trees and roses. And this is said to improve rooting and boost growth and be particularly important in the cases of problems like replant disease or where you're starting a garden from scratch. However, the action of mycorrhiza fungi is impacted by the use of fertiliser and not a lot of gardeners are aware of this so if you have a very heavily cultivated soil for example an allotment bed or you commonly add lots of fertilisers to your garden there's not really any benefit of you adding mycorrhiza when you're planting something new because the presence of those fertilisers will suppress the action of the fungus. So it's really important if you do plant and you do use mycorrhiza, which is often sprinkled on, then it's important not to use fertilisers for at least a year or two after planting. Charlotte Sweeney. That's all for today's show. For more on all things fungi and mushrooms, visit our website, rhs.org.uk slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, <clears throat> Fungi Barter. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>